Hello, how you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? Happy Thursday. This is episode 129 of the Two Shot Podcast. It's only with Samantha Morton. Yeah, I know. Right, a few thank yous. Uh, Don't worry, they're all for you. Yes, you. Um, What an overwhelming reaction we had to episode 128 comeback last week with Lenny James. Um... As you all know, it was such a mammoth episode. Uh, We split it into two parts. If you haven't listened to part two, make sure you sign off on that because uh, some people are saying it's their favourite episode so far. But I love Lenny so much and I love chatting to him. And as with last week, what you'll get with this week is I think you'll get a real sense of who Sam Morton is and where she's from, and her beliefs. Uh, it's, it's an amazing natter. It really is great. I'm so chuffed she finally came on, because as you can hear at the start, we've been talking about this for ages, which always happens, but with the current state of the world, um, people seem to have a little bit more time on their hands. So a massive thank you to you all for your messages on social media and your emails. Um, I'm so pleased that uh, you enjoyed it as much as you did. Um, Oh, another thank you to all the people on our social media feed who took the merch poll. Um, It seems bags, mugs, and... Yeah, tote bags, mugs, badges seem to be coming out on top. So we are looking into that. And it's a way for us to say thank you to you and for you to support us uh, about what we do. Um, Now... For those that do follow us on our social media feed, you may have seen, maybe a week or so ago, I think just before Lenny, before we announced that we were coming back, I did say that things might not get back to normal straight away. It might be a slightly slow, if not steady return. Uh, I'm going to try and keep it going, but there's a few things that I have to do in the coming weeks, which may affect uh, the rollout of episodes. There'll be a slight little bump in the road, possibly. I'm just giving you a heads up, but obviously I'll let you know as and when. Uh, but don't worry, it ain't going to be any sort of uh, long break like, like what we have had. It may be a week, it may be two. I can't envisage it being any longer than that. Um, yeah, that's all. Well, it's episode 129 of the Two Shot Podcast. This is Samantha Morton. Enjoy, and I shall see you at the end. But there there are also knobs out there, let's face it. Do you know what I mean? Well, exactly. It's people like that. But if you give people the knowledge, and as you say, sort of not scaremongering, it's going to be easier for everybody. Exactly. But Sam, how are you? Um, I'm okay. I've been better i it's hard because i'm talking to you and you're my friend so 
like, I've got to remember, this is like business. Um, yeah. Well, it's not business. It's bus- just two friends having a conversation. Okay. Um, I'm okay. I've, I didn't do well with lockdown at all. Um, In what way? I think that, I think, I, first of all, I was shielding. Um, I've got asthma and I've had pneumonia a few times and pleurisy and things like that. So I've got, mm. you know, from, I think it's also growing up with chain smoking parents back in the eighties. Do you know what I mean? I've got, I just, and I've never smoked myself in that cause I just can't bloody breathe. But, um, no. and so I think initially because we'd been in America for so long, when we got home, we were so excited to be home back in the UK and see friends and family. And we all got a nasty winter bug anyway, regardless of the virus. And then literally just as our lives were kind of, we're back home, we've been away for a long time, you know, planning on seeing everybody. Uh, this kicked off. And I I remember thinking before, you know, way, way early on that something wasn't right and I said to Harry, my my husband, I said really early, do you know my husband, uh, very early on, I said, um, I think this is the biggie. And I think that, you know, we need to be extra careful. And our house was on the market. So we were having people in and out there, like viewers, second viewings, third viewings and surveyors and everything. And like a nutter, my very, very sweet estate agent thought I was absolutely nuts but I was making everybody wear booties, masks, and gloves. This is before it. Were you really? Yeah. Even before it was a thing. When I was reading about it in a, in China, I just had a sense that it was um, something was dodge. It's on its way. Just yeah. dodge. Like, hold on a minute. Yeah. This is it. We were due one anyway. Do you know what I mean? And there's been. Mm. They all thought I was nuts, but my estate agent was like, "Oh, you're ahead of the curve. You're ahead of the curve. Whatever." When it when it all kicked off, and he, yeah, but it, it was so. It was just that first of all was really tricky, um, and then we and then we bought this hat. I bought a house off on the internet, or not off the, literally off the internet, but I bought a house <laughs> that I saw on the internet. <laughs> I mean, like an absolute just idiot, um, a dream house, great, obviously. Great time, yeah. Um, and then that kind of went through just before lockdown, so I couldn't go to my new house. Um, mm. And the, obviously, the government was like, "You can't move now." And so we were, we'd bought one house, was selling another, and so we were kind of. It was really odd, and I had all this work coming in, and then that work just overnight just disappeared. Yeah, which is, which is what it is. But when you're kind of going, you've you've your whole life has to shift. Do you know what I mean? Immediately with. Uh, navigating a global pandemic and your health and the health of your children and the welfare of your children and do you know what I mean so it was just a bit tricky um and so yeah we we got into our new house about eight weeks ago our Mm. dream new house and it's absolutely magical so I'm okay I'm all right I'm just surrounded by um so many boxes because that was the other thing the house is I mean absolute perfection in yeah. the fact that I love it, but it's not been done touched since the sixties, right? A lot of which we're keeping because we love this. I love a lot of the, you know, how it looks and everything. But it still is really like needs new wire, you know, wiring and plumbing, and it's just tired. And initially, you know, you couldn't have anyone in the house to do that. We weren't allowed anyone in this property to do that because of, you know, lockdown. And now, so we're living in mm. the house 
going, how are we going to get manage this? I bought a caravan, so I think we're going to live in the caravan. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great caravan. I mean, they can't even call it a caravan. It's a bloody airstreamer. It is a very, it's so, it's it so is beautiful. a very nice caravan. But we're a big family. And yeah. I, and I listen, you know, I've only been, you know, kind of here for a few weeks and I didn't, I was like, hold on a minute. How we, we we've got through lockdown without killing each other. We've mm. got, you know, living in a caravan. Whenever Success. you watch Grand Designs and you see these families, you're like, oh my God. <laughs> you know I could I mean? never do that. <laughs> exactly. You're like, oh, and they've, you know, and they, you know, he sits there and he's like, and what's your budget and all this? And you're like, Okay, now fire. You know, like it. It all seems a bit excessive, and and but we're not doing a big grand designs thing. We're just putting new plumb, new pipes in, and some new taps. Essentials. Essential yeah. things, yeah. Because I love the house. I mean, all the things as well. I thought I'd change, like, oh, need a new kitchen because this kitchen was put in in nineteen sixty four. Um, I've grown to absolutely love it. Like just being here a few weeks, it's an old, like, just wooden, you know kitchen they had made it's it's just sweet and wood and it's quite japanese in a way because obviously that it's just beautiful and then also like the bathroom is proper blue like everything's blue <laughs> and and harry can't even look at it without feeling a bit ill and i was like right that's gotta go and you know thinking about new bathrooms and then now i love it i just want some new taps blue loo, blue blue bath got gonna get rid of the bidet though i don't think that's very we don't really need a bidet no, because no. because we'd we'd had quite a long break from recording episodes since May. I haven't really recorded any apart from Lenny last week. Yeah, and uh, prior to that, the early ones in May during the lockdown, I wasn't really discussing the lockdown because it was quite an you know it was it was only a couple of months in and it was mm. kind of new. And I wanted the episodes to kind of have a history and survive and not be tagged into the pandemic but it's gone on so long now and people have because a, a comedian friend of mine uh matt ford didn't leave his two-bedroom flat because he's got severe asthma and didn't see anybody yeah that was that um, must have been really awful for him well it was really awful for him but you know people always have these quite extravagant plans about what they're going to do and what they're going to learn he ended up writing a book that's phenomenal which is, which yeah. is incredible and that wouldn't have happened without that. Oh, that's amazing. I think... Yeah. I used to look at people on Instagram, just briefly, in, you know, in between everything else that was happening and see these incredible families doing these incredible things or, um, you know, people put what they want to put on Instagram, though, don't they? They put the kind of the life they mm. want to... You know, it's like makeup. People put makeup on before they leave the house or a certain image or well, whatever. They, they... They put on the life that they want you to see. Yeah. And not, I, not... I mean, for me, I was, we were struggling because it, I think moving house is tough at any time, isn't it? Packing up a house. Yeah, and our, and our house in Derbyshire, a big old manor, manor house. And we just, it was absolutely, you know, you'd filled it, we'd filled it with all our life. And then we had obviously the barn with the recording studio and the, you know, mm. it was, we just had a lot of stuff to pack up. And so the kids, bless them, obviously you're doing BBC Bite Size with Teddy, he's little and you're trying to make sure he's okay. You know, Edie's doing school online or whatever. And I found that literally there was no time to 
to do anything. You get up in the morning. It's not just breakfast, kids go to school and your routine of laundry or housework. It, it was like there was more of everything to do. Yeah. And trying to maintain, make sure that they were okay. Certainly Teddy, who's six years old, to not see any other child other than his sister, who's at that age where she doesn't want to play with a six-year-old boy. I mean, she's lovely. She's a great big sister. But, you know, there's only so much play she can do because she's past that mm. age in some ways, or developmentally, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, there was the beautiful aspect of us spending so much time together, which I hear from a lot of people as well. That's beautiful. But we're a very tight-knit family anyway because we're on the road together all the time. Yeah. And yeah. the kids are sometimes homeschooled. And so would, we have that thing going on. But I think there was also kind of the general sense of what does this mean in regards to even food? So for us, Harry's mum came to stay with us because she'd been stuck in Nepal. So she got out just before the borders closed and she came to stay with us because um, she's over 70. And she was in the, she quarantined in the barn where the recording studio was. And we were like, oh, great, we'll hopefully get some shopping then because she's, you know, you get a letter, you got a shield or whatever. Mm. Um, but no, we couldn't get any deliveries. It was really, 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 yeah, we could, where we lived in Derbyshire, we were really struggling. Because it was too, because it was too remote. Yeah, but, but nobody, just nobody would deliver to us. We couldn't get a slot, we couldn't get any local organic delivery company, you know what I mean, Vegbox vibe. When, yeah. you live, when you live rurally, it is really different, especially in somewhere like, it's not like Second Homesville where we lived. It was just a very mm. ordinary, fantastic work, you know, farming community. Um, mm. And because we're vegan, it's not like we can nip over to another farmer and go, oh, have you got any lamb or chickens or a bit of beef or you know, local dairy products that you can get from the farm shops. But then you're also being told to stay in your house. You're not allowed out. No. Well, my dad was shielding as well. Oh, And good. early on yeah. in the lockdown, there was one time that they couldn't get a slot or anything. So I, was, I just did a big shop for them and just drove back to Blackpool. Right, and you're just dropped amazing. It off the, you're amazing. Just dropped it off at the door. Well, I, what I did, because I'm, a, you know, I know how to cook or whatever, we had a lot of, and also because we live where we live and we have a lot of um, snowstorms where we get snowed in for days, I did have a big pantry with, I've got a big pantry, with, um, <laughs> <laughs> with um, a lot of dry goods. I've always got the what-if cupboard as well. I've always had a what-if cupboard that has literally what if anything happens. So we were fine for a lot of dried goods, which, yeah. you know, lots of people couldn't get hold of, you know, flour, because we make yeah. our own bread anyway. Do you know what I mean? We're kind of a foodie type family. And I, th I think when you're mm. vegan as well, or, you know, I say mostly vegan, you you have to, with, within the family, you really, really have to know how to cook. You have to know how to make all sorts when you're vegan. Otherwise, you're not going to get a balanced diet. Mm. So that was okay. But then eventually we got... <clears throat> Eventually, we got some, you know, we, we found someone who would deliver some to somewhere in Matlock to a special location and we'd sneakily drive to Matlock and pick this box of veg up because otherwise we'd have been apt. I was growing stuff, but, it, you know, it's seasonal, isn't it? You're like, come on. Exactly. You know, I haven't got any kale yet or any potatoes yet. You know what I mean? But we were no. growing from seeds. And... So I think in regards to a pandemic, watching how every different country's handled it as well and watching our government... I mean, horrifically, horrifically 
um, make mistakes and that has, I believe, you know, cost lives. You, there's also, you know, a sense of getting a bit agoraphobic, weirdly. It's a bit like that um, condition where people fall in love with their kidnappers. Do you know what I mean? Initially, you're really like claustrophobic. You know, you can't bear it. You want to get out. You want to do things. You feel restricted. And then all of a sudden that becomes really safe and you're afraid to go out. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's the it, it's the enforced nature of it. It's like yeah. you're being told that you can't do anything. And, yeah. and I've, I've always been someone who's been thought, no, I'm really good with my own company. But when it's enforced and you, yeah. you can't do anything and you can't see anybody, that changes things. It turns it on its head. And you also, with, with you know, you're a dad, so you'll get this. We don't really like the kids watching too much telly or too much screen time. We like to do things as a family, and whether it's having a game of sorry or game of cards or walk, mm. walking or, you know, with, you know, routines like we watch. Once a week, we'll watch a documentary together or, you know, Teddy loves his, you know, his, his Attenboroughs. Do you know what I mean? All of that. But, it, but then all of a sudden, we find ourselves with going, right, well... We can't drive, you know, you can't go anywhere outside your community. You know, you can have one walk outside a day. Now, we were lucky because we've got, because um, we lived on a farm, we've got, you know, you saw it in a couple of fields. We were, yeah, we were a small farm, but we, you know, we've got, we just got puppies before lockdown as well. Like, we didn't know this was going to happen. Oh my gosh. So, and it, it just felt really very, very sad really sad and then I'd watch videos of everyone clapping for the NHS and thinking obviously our village was clapping but it it wasn't the same as being in a city and you're on a street yeah when you're like oh my god the community all comes together yeah. yeah but it was it is what it is and I think that now it's navigating again having and I'm not somebody that doesn't trust governments I'm not one of those people and all that I think they've got a really tough job whether it's you know, conservative or Labour, I do not envy anybody in that position having to make the right decisions based on economy, health, all the rest of it. It's not easy. And I think, you know, hats off to, you know, the Chancellor for some of the things he did at the time and immediately. Um, Could have done more, but then they're going to be criticised, you know, either either way. But I do think in regards to the common sense aspect of it, when you look at New Zealand, you're like, hold on a minute, they seem to be getting this a bit right. And why aren't they mass testing everybody? Why is everybody suffering at home? Hold on a minute, you've got a deadly virus, but we're not going to help you. You've got to, you've got to do the, deal with this at home on your own. And so now, kids going back to school in a few weeks, I'm really, really worried. Because I read the, yeah. you know, I read uh, all different kinds of news and I like to just keep a abreast of it all, whether it's the New York Times, looking at the Daily Mail, you know, the BBC, the Guardian, you know, just really just across the board looking at it all. And I think that the the overwhelming evidence is that children do spread it. They don't seem to suffer as much, but they do suffer, Mm. can die. Mm. And that they've had cases certainly in Georgia where one child has infected has been a super spreader and has infected, you know, whole communities. You know, schools have had to close down. Um, and, that you know, and, and we're talking hundreds of people getting mm. coronavirus. Um, so it's, is that going to happen here, even though our numbers are low, even though they're doing these little bubbles or whatever? I, I feel just very, 
you know, if they were, if we were being, if, if the whole country was being tested every week, like little kits arriving and you have to send it off. I, I, yeah. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. It just, so I'm a bit, sorry to ramble. I, no, I'm no, a no, bit, no, no. I'm a bit Look, confused and concerned and a bit I think we're all com- confused and, and nervous. Yeah. Certainly about the children going back. I mean, certainly they can't go back to any sort of, have any sort of normality or the way it was. They can't just throw them all into schools for the sake of the economy, but... And for their mental health, they're saying their well-being. But do you know what? Well... We're talking about well-being. The government's saying we have no choice on this. So in the same way as an actor, if you take your kid out of local school, you either lose their place or you're fined, you Mm. know... You're penalised, whether you're a musician or you're an actor or, you know, you're a roadie or anything to do with the arts and travel, you you don't get any support from your school or the local authority because they literally blanket everybody with, if your kid's not in school, you're going to get fined or sent, you know, or prosecuted. Do you know what I mean? That vibe. Mm. It's It's just awful. And the same with this. Even if you're, like, for me, my doctor, when it kicked off the first time, because there'd been a case in Buxton um, and my son's school shared a teacher, a PE teacher with the school that, that one of the first cases of coronavirus was at. Yeah. And I had a chat with my doctor and it was just, and we, we agreed that because of my susceptibility and my immune, you know, low immune system, whatever, that, that we'd take the kids out of school immediately before, you know, and then we had to get, I had to get letters and then I had to, you know, compromise my own immunity by taking that letter into school. And, you know, oh, it was just, and now they're saying it doesn't matter. Even if you're somebody that's shielded, your kids have to go to school. You know, <sighs> you don't have the choice. It's a fucking minefield, to be honest, because I'm really confused too. And, and very nervous. Mm. I mean, don't get me wrong. My kids are desperate to get back to school. They need it more. Than, they need their peers more than anything. I think, I think all children yeah. are desperate. But, but they're, if they're... it's the sake of another six months not being, in, not being in a classroom environment where we've got a vaccine or the numbers are ridiculously low globally because we're only as strong as our weakest link. And if our borders mm. are open to all... I mean, I, I've got mates that have just got back from America or... Uh, Spain, literally the last week, they're not. Nobody's really checking on them, quarantining. It's a bloody no, joke. Not. No, they're walking. They're, they're going. Where are you staying? All right, off you pop. Yeah. What's that? And, yeah. <laughs> nice one. Nice one. Border control. Brilliant. <laughs> it's like an episode. It's, it's like though. a comedy show. It's it, only yeah. it's not funny. It's really scary. No, it's really fucking scary for a podcast that said that we don't really yak on about lockdown and stuff like that. We've done a pretty good job to start we did. the podcast off with you, didn't go. we? But I think it's really important because I was saying to somebody the other day, I've only just been able to concentrate on watching a film or watching a documentary. There was a time where I, I, said, I just wow. said it to a friend last night, I couldn't listen to music because it sort of evoked too much emotion. Yeah, it's been yeah. a big roller coaster of emotion. You, For I you, know as you well, get yeah. this. For me as well, yeah. yeah. And also, I remember going, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to finish reading this. And I would reread the same page. It just wasn't going in. Yeah. The words, they didn't mean anything. It's like when you repeat a word over and over again till it becomes yeah. meaningless. Yeah, or it even looking at it, the word the, what the fuck is that all about? Yeah, the, and then the, it just, yeah, yeah it doesn't, <laughs> yeah. 
So that was like the start for me. Did you have anything like that or were you yeah, quite productive? Yeah, no, I mean, obviously looking after the kids and Harry was busy packing up the house as best he could and we both were, but he was doing most of the work um, while I was with the, the children. But you've you've also got like, I've only just watched The Tiger Thing on Netflix. I mean, talk about late even, to the party. Because, I haven't even gone there. Because the only thing that I was able to watch the whole of lockdown was MasterChef. Because it, I love MasterChef anyway. Yeah. I mean, I do love it anyway. Mm. But it was this thing of you're not even really watching, if that makes sense. Because it's just, you can dip in and out of it. It's, you know. Um, and I had this idea, because I, I write diaries. I have done since I was a very, very little girl. And I've always kept a diary, and it, you know, right away. And I'm writing. Mm. And I started at the beginning of lockdown really, you know, writing about the experience and how it was affecting me and... Um, and then I couldn't. I literally would get into bed, well, crash, you know, at the end of the day, shattered, like on my knees, go, right, I've got to sleep now, my wide awake. But I couldn't write. It was almost, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't even, it was weird. I, I, the thing that was the, the, the nicest thing for me was the Jarv, Jarvis Cocker's um, parties on Instagram. He did these, you know, and I went, yeah. I went to a couple of those and met some nice people, had a couple of, Bacardi and Cokes or whatever and um, <laughs> and had a dance around my handbag and that was really fun. Um, but other than that, there was, I wasn't, no, I, could, I was a bit like you, actually. And we, and we, it's funny that, isn't it? And I think it's because on mm. a, you know, subconscious level, we, I was doing quite a bit of exercise, um, trying to keep the kids fit because other than doing the schoolwork, you know, I tried the Joe Wicks one morning with the kids and that was just daft. We were bopping each other in the faces in the front room and I was like, oh, forget this. You know what I mean? So I just took them outside. We just went outside. I've, I know enough about fitness to go, right, we're going to play, we're going to play Dobby Little Men and then, <laughs> or tag, tag, if you don't know what Dobby yeah. Little Men is. And then um, football, netball. We had a netball, we got a basketball hoop so that was there when we moved in. So we did a bit of that skipping and just having a laugh outside and the best yeah. we could with the puppies you know because I mean I think the Joe Wicks thing was great for some people but for us it you know we we were lucky enough to have a garden so big garden so we yeah. were doing that we ended up climbing trees oh like, that's every cool. other day because we just good. we just thought right well if we start climbing trees it's good and it's fun and it's exercise and also we're away from everybody else because we're That's a bloody amazing. tree. That's amazing. We're bloody so fall out. No, 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 no. We're quite. We're, we're, we're you're quite good. You're Spider Man. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> Little Spidey senses. See, it's funny then because you were talking about sort of where you are now and you're in this house, and it's a far cry from where you started out, like growing up in Nottingham. Yeah. So I thought we'd sort of go back there okay. and discuss growing up in Knotts, which holds a very dear place in my heart, as you know, because, yeah. you know, you're from there and um, Vicky's from there and me and you filmed there for quite an intense yeah. period of time. And um, and I really love the people. I've always... But what was it like when you were growing up? Because it's changed a lot, I think, over the years. We've got trams that's <laughs> I, mean, I know. I know. We've got trams. Um, yep. Oh, what's what was it like for me growing up? 
you, you, we always have rose tinted spectacles in some ways, don't we? When we, when we want to. Um, and I think for me, the older I get, the more those years are, are rosy. They're special and mm. they're, they're kind of in a, almost in a, you know, those little snow globes that you can shake. Like my childhood yeah. is inside a snow globe. And it's really cool, and I could pick it up and go, "Oh, look at that! There's St. Anne's, and all oh, there's Clifton, and there's and all these different." Because I was, as you know, I was in care, so I had lots of different lives, lots of different families, lots of different brothers and sisters, and mums and dads, and different realities as I kept moving around, and always in Nottingham. Was, luckily for me, back then I wasn't moved out of Nottingham, um, so I knew the city like the back of my hand. I still do. Could you could drop me anywhere, and I could walk find my way back into town to anywhere just know it yeah. just insanely well um and yeah things do change when you go back and you drive back things don't look the same buildings have gone sadly you know car parks have gone up or whatever but i think the people uh in some ways stay the same in obviously we times change um social attitudes change but there's something in the Nottinghamism of Nottingham, that means there's a very like don't take yourself too seriously, funny, warm, kind, yeah. um, proud. Yeah, because very like, proud. Because of you, you and Vicky, who I know, Sat Baines, who's a great chef, yeah. very proud yeah. of Nottingham and where they're from and their roots. It's very interesting you say that because you don't know it because you're just from... But I found myself... I mean, Harry has this joke where nothing's ever good enough because it's not from Nottingham or I'm not in Nottingham. So every... <laughs> you know, we'll see a house, I'll be like, oh, it's not as nice as the ones in the park. And I'll be like, and talking about Father Gills and, you know, architects and, and, you know, that's, and it's a bit like Naples, you know, because it's all built on sandstone and, you know, everything is better in Nottingham. And, the, and, and I think that there is a kind of a badge of pride, whether it's growing up, see, growing up in the 80s, you know, our Nottingham Forest were just doing incredibly well football wise. You've got, you know, Brian Clough that we all mm. adored and, and Nottingham so, small as well in a way that you would see the you know the footballers running along the trend you know doing their training and these were it it was very I don't know I I grew up with you know my grandma was Irish and my granddad's Polish and I didn't sadly know my dad's uh, dad and my nonna as we say she was I didn't really know her very well and also it's it's a place, this is from an outsider's perspective, that understands its identity. You know, when yeah. cities have yeah. an identity, yeah. I've always thought that of Nottingham, the yeah. very first time that I worked there, which was, again with you, which was like 11 years ago, I think. Fuck. Yeah, control. <laughs> control, yeah. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, can we talk about going into care, Sam? Yeah, we can. But just going back to the pride thing, it does mm. punch above its weight as well because it's a very small city, but the Industrial Revolution did it a lot of favours. We had a huge... Because we were central to so much stuff. Do you know what I mean? That's why it's called central, mm. you know, the Midlands. Um, yeah. 
And I believe I'm, I often refer to myself as a northerner, but I, and Harry's like, you're not a northerner, you're from Nottingham, you're from the Midlands. I'm like, all right then. But any, when you live in London, anything north of the Watford Gap is bloody north. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, that, of course. That's how it felt. But I think there's, there is, for me growing up there, you've got, you know, Queen's Medical Centre, you've got your, um, which is a huge hospital there, but it's a teaching hospital. You've got all of these universities and colleges, some of the best, you know, in the world, Nottingham University people coming from all over the world to study there and you've got I mean you know I used to go raving at the Marcus Garvey Centre and that's who I learned about kind of Marcus Garvey, Martin Luther King you know Nottingham is incredibly multicultural as well so you grow up you just can't grow up right for me I didn't know any racist people growing up honestly because at that point, there's just everybody's intermingled. So in Highs and Green, where I went to school, where I went to junior school, just mm. everybody's from everywhere. And there was no... And it was immediately accepted because it was just well, the norm. Well, yeah, because uh, Highs and Green was a predominantly Pakistani community because obviously back in the day, the councils are doing segregation in a way because you've got Top Valley, not Top Valley, sorry, you've got St Anne's where you know kind of I suppose they were placing the Windrush generation do you know what I mean things like mm. that and then yeah. for whatever reason uh when I was small uh there's a big block of flats where there's an Asda there now but that was massively Pakistani um and it's a little bit like when I lived in East London and and the Beng- I lived in a Bengali community there it, yeah. it it's 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 wonderful. It's life. It's like, so you don't, everybody and kids don't know race. They just want to play the language of play. And I was jealous of all my friends who had saris because they look fucking beautiful. <laughs> and I wanted a bindi and I wanted henna on my hands and I wanted to celebrate yeah. Eid and I wanted to, you know, eat the sweets because the sweets were insane. That's all yeah. children know. And I think that that's why I love my, the city I'm from and I'm proud to be from there. And, you know, I'm sad I can't live there. I'm sad I don't live there. Um, and breaks my heart a little bit. But you, you know, I, I think that that gives, gave me going off into the world, like moving to New York at 19. Where are you from? From Nottingham. I didn't say I'm from England. I wouldn't say I'm from the UK, you know, Great Britain. <laughs> I'm from, where are you from? Nottingham. <laughs> what the fuck's that? That's the, that's the thing that I'm talking about, yeah. about the pride yeah. that, that I think people from Nottingham pursued. Yeah. Yeah. They really do. Yeah. Anyway, you can go on about the care thing now if you want. I'm not going to go on about the care thing. I just want to delve a little deeper. Yeah. Um, what age were you when you first went into care? It's a baby. It's a little baby. Um, and that was... Uh, I was in and out of care till I think I was about... And, and it's quite odd with dates and things. And, mm. and anyone listening, if they know any different, just let me know. Because <laughs> it's all trying to... <laughs> piece together your life is really complex when your life is so hectic as a child and you feel like you've lived 10 lives before you're even 12 um but yeah I was in and out of care till I was about seven and I think then I had kind of more longer term foster placements and as opposed to emergency fostering constantly and then um in 1989 uh, I became the children's act made me become basically a ward of court so I then was owned by the state from that point onwards. Yeah. Did it feel quite... Was it? Did you feel as a child that it was disruptive for you that you were moving place to place, even though you were within Nottingham? I didn't identify did with s- that. I didn't know the language of that until I was about 12, when I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, not again. 
Right. I mean, really, not again. When I got moved again and again and again. And because I was really settled at school, I was doing well at school, I got some really nice friends. And then I moved into... And and to be fair, that when when you're little and you get moved you don't fully understand why you're very sad you're very frightened you're very alone for a bit and then you just get used to your new family but then when you start having your own identity when you've gone from care bears into madonna got to remember it is the 80s you're suddenly feeling Mm -hmm. like a grown-up even though you're not um and you're you know you're not allowed to stay with a foster family for something very bizarre uh my foster my foster parents had separated and i think the social services felt that uh my then foster mom who sadly passed away from cancer when i was young um she wasn't able to be a single foster mom because that wasn't okay then so right and so is that okay obviously is that okay now yeah yeah you can be a single yeah yeah, you can be a foster care and be single now and right um so yeah that was that i was not happy about that at all and then started running away from from various abusive foster homes so I really started sleeping on the streets and you, we call it sofa surfing now but then it was like just sneaking into mates bedrooms and saying can I kip in your bottom of your wardrobe tonight or mm. that was from was the age of 12 11 12 till till, till about when oh that didn't stop till I got my first I think my first proper place was a homeless hostel uh Mansfield Road in Nottingham so I was 16. How was all that affecting you though and sort of your mental health because there's no you haven't put any you can't put any roots down anywhere so did that think, did that affect your identity of who you were? I don't think we we put a lot of emphasis on identity now in society. Young people, whether it's their sexuality, you know, there's a lot of identity conversation. You know, it's great you're asking this question, mm. but we didn't really think about identity then. You're just living your life. You're just being, a, you're just being, you know, and I got into the rave culture very young. I lied about my age a lot. I said I was 14 when I was 12. Um, and even really 14 was quite young to be doing what I was doing. I remember there was this whole thing about Amanda Decadene being the wild child on the word and all that. And as I got out with some people and we'd just come back from Venus and I really shouldn't have been in Venus at all. This was this night. Who should? It sounds, sounds awful. Oh, no, no, it was amazing. Um, was it? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was a club in Nottingham that was, uh, yeah, this, this guy James Bailey ran and you got Sasha, start, you know, did there. And just it was, oh. uh, and the, I mean, gosh, and I could think of, you know, so many DJs that, DJed there but it was just proper incredible music and dancing and I didn't like alcohol I didn't drink and I couldn't afford drugs so I just liked dancing and being a little at that point I couldn't really afford drugs but um I um yeah I remember we're going back to someone's you always go back to someone's don't you when it shuts being yeah. back at someone's and then someone going oh because I looked older I'd wore I went vintage clothes shopping I had this kind of amazing suit like something Sly and the Family Stone, this kind of flares, and I was in these mega platforms and this little jacket, and um, well, it's a suit. And everyone talking, you know, like saying, you know, the idea of a wild child, but and Amanda Decadene and thinking, fucking hell, 
you know, you want to come to Nottingham and see some of the people I hang out with. Do you know what I mean? That's, that'll fucking make your hair go curly. Blow your socks off. Yeah. So it was, um, yeah, I had a lot of fun. I had so much fun. I had adventures. I met amazing people from all walks of life through that rave community, through the DIY mm. community as well and the travellers and, you know, sometimes hooking up with those people and going to amazing raves in the countryside and and learning about... Because uh, I'd left... I'd run away from school at that point, so, like, I never went back. And so I, my education was from a bunch of hippies, really, you know, whether it was learning about Nostradamus or, you know, kind of, you know, the artists or politics or magic mushrooms or, you know, eating vegan food. I mean, veganism, what the fuck, you know, back in yeah. 1990, 1991, being a, I mean, being a vegetarian was fucking a bit car brown, yeah, sandals yeah. and brown cardigan, do you know what I mean? Or yeah. whatever the phrase was. It was, um, so yeah, <laughs> learning about all these things and I loved it I had a great time it's interesting because just a while back you were saying that you were doing really well at school and you were settled and then obviously you ran away from school so when did that start to decline I ran away from school because a couple of reasons um Mm. I was getting into a lot of trouble at school and I think in hindsight I wasn't very pleasant um I used to uh I got a job as a dancer, dancing at these raves on a podium. Not not like what you see in Ibiza, all sexy or anything like that. It was literally just cycle top, a whistle, just getting everyone going. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The Garvey would close. All-nighters then were quite... They, they did happen, but they were more like till three in the morning, whereas there was the, the club, um, Venus, the club. Like the, the thing is you had your... You had your townies and your ravers. It was so funny looking back. And then you got your rockabillies and all, all these different <laughs> groups in Market Square hanging out. And um, I liked everybody, got on with everybody, loved everybody. And so I think for me, when I kind of being at those raves or whatever, and then going back to the children's home, because at this point I wasn't in foster homes anymore. I was in a really, really, really rough children's home, like proper rough and I was not happy there and so you know and also it was like two buses to get to school and then I had a voluntary driver because my my children's home was in Bestwood like Top Valley Bestwood Park way right and my school was in West Bridgeford which was a really kind of a different kind of area you know the houses on this on the street where my school is are like 1.7 million today you know it's like very very but it's a state school but we don't, mm. do you know what I mean? It's like a really, really, it was a fantastic school and they were very kind to me. I think I was a nightmare, Craig. I just, I had, I think I bullied people because I, I, I was laughed at and sniggered at. I didn't have like enough, enough puffer jacket or trendy clothes or I was a bit, I wasn't a crusty, but I certainly lived in my Joe Bloggs jeans and my palladiums. Do you know what I mean? And I was, mm. you know, I, looked, I was listening to the charlatans in my headphones and, you know, that was my... yeah. Kind of. Well, you were certainly you were certainly made to feel a certain way. Yeah, so you, by some yeah. of the girls, and then I just felt so isolated. And if I, I mean, my way of dealing with it was really wrong. Was if someone was horrible to me, I'd just go up and knock them out. And so mm. every time I'd hit somebody or be, I mean, seriously, 
I was a nightmare for them. And I knew that. And I also knew that I was falling behind and I didn't, I was embarrassed by that. And I think back then, obviously, I had a bit of an ego and it's like, I just didn't want that. Um, and I, I used to be, I still horrible, I think. And I think I was angry with the world and looking back at that point yeah. and angry with yeah. the system when you're a child of the state and you have no right or identity and they're locking the fridge and you can't access food and your bed smells of piss and you're sharing a room with a, a girl that's being exploited or abused or there's so many elements that I was like no wonder I wanted to be in a field dancing listening to fucking Shades of Rhythm or whatever you know or Future yeah. Sound of London no mm. wonder those people were not they weren't scary to me. The skinheads in Market Square were kinder to me. You know, the 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 sweet, sweet raster men in that I'd bump into in, you know, outside certain places who would be tell me, you know, little girl, go home, you know, because you know, you not go on, on the streets tonight, you know, go home by. <laughs> yeah. they, they were kind people were kinder to me out there than in inside at home. Do you know what I mean? I was mm. more looked after on the streets than I was at home, as opposed to and I'm not I'm sure that's not the case for everybody. Um I think Nottingham is a very was very small as well. So you get to know the different people that are sleeping rough or whether you know what what was going on. Well, it was it was the ultimate escape for you, wasn't it? The, yeah, the, the big the big escape but to get away like from it all. A, revolu- a revolution, yeah, it felt like a revolution though. Back then, you've you got to remember you got the, you had the miners' strike, you'd had you know major recessions, you got the poll tax, you got all of these major political things that are happening in the country at that time, mm. bubbling up. You know, we're so unhappy with the you know the Tories and. You know, I grew up, my dad, for all his faults, you know, was a massively into the Socialist Workers' Party. You know, we lived in communes for I lived in communes for a bit as a kid as well. And so you, you, I grew up really seeing injustice constantly, you know, and, um, and I suppose that the worst place for me was in a children's home, but it was also one of the best places for me because the things I've learned through that experience and the, you know, the toolkit it's given me to survive my life mm. um, and to have a taste of what it's like on the other side um, and to be able to appreciate, you know, we talked about where I am now, my house or yeah. whatever. Yeah. I do pinch myself every day that I'm not dead or in, because of something that, you know, something unfortunate could have happened when I was a kid sure. or, you know, environmental factors. Or... D- or- you know, deeply, deeply traumatised. I think I am. I suffer PTSD. Mm. I, you know, yeah. quite, I've got all sorts. But that's to do with abuse. That's not, I don't think, I don't think that's so much to do with having a great time at raves for a few years. <laughs> do you know what mm. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Although I did used to say to people, because I, I used to say, wonder what E's are going to do to us later. Well, you know, taking E's now, it's all fantastic. What if we'll get a bit weird? You know, what's because we didn't know what's going to happen to our brains in 30, 40 years. Well, we'll soon find out. Yeah, watch this space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you ever think, looking back on it, Sam, and maybe now, that you were, f- because of all that, you were forced to g- grow up too quickly? Yes and no. I think I was incredibly streetwise, but I always, always, and people that have known me for a very long time say I haven't really changed at all in, lot, in lots of ways. And I think mm. because of having a huge amount of faith, I was very, very religious as a child, very, very devout Catholic. 
Right. Um, and I believe in magic and fairies and miracles and I believe in just everything. I'm just, I love every, you know, I'm a bit mystical like that in lots of yeah. ways that I think you keep innocence, you keep hope and love and I'm a bit of a hippie in that way, you know? So I think that, yes, I grew up, I was streetwise, but yeah. I could also feel a good vibe from somebody, people's auras or, you know, I'd be like, oh, I like this person or this person doesn't feel very good. I'm not good in this room right now. I think I need to leave. I'm not, you know, do you know what I mean? So Yeah, absolutely. But isn't it so lovely that you didn't just turn completely streetwise, that you kept some of the magic that, that we were talking about before about yeah. a child playing? They just want to play. Yeah. And they don't know any different. Every, you know. I thank my mum for the, that. I thank my mum a lot for that. Because my dad was, you know, into his poetry and his communes and his The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And at times when we had no electricity or food or things like that, and he was single dad for a bit, um, he would just read to us, for, you know, like, just, we had no telly, so he'd just, or when we had a bit of a, you know, lecky on the meter, he'd he'd play a lot of, you know, he had this old wireless thing, so played really good music to us growing up. And, and my mum was, my mum and my stepdad had a dodgy video shop, so in their house. So I watched a lot of films that I probably shouldn't have watched at the time. But they yeah. used to re- also record for me hours and hours of cartoons. So when I was allowed to go and visit my mum, which wasn't very often, but I had this, I was always in a fantasy land. Like I remember one of the first things she, one of her favourite films was The Dark Crystal, the Jim Henson film. Yeah. And that became one of my favourite films when I was little. And you've, it was the 80s, so we've got things like, you know, The NeverEnding Story or... Labyrinth. You know, labyrinth. So you're, you're, you know, watching Fraggle Rock. You know, you've got this... We were allowed a bit more innocence as kids then, I think, even though there was a huge amount of jeopardy going on on the planet with the Cold War and America and Russia or, what you know. Mm-hmm. I think of the Falklands, you know, and my my brother went, you know, was a, in the military and was going off to Iraq and there was a lot of shit going on in the 90s as well, you know, late 80s, early 90s. So, But I think we... We were allowed to be a bit more innocent then in a, you know, and I, you know, but then tragedies happened like Hillsborough, you know, and that, so it was a, so you had bigger tragedies than yourself. Yeah. You don't, you're not feeling sorry for yourself growing up because, fucking okay, hell, look what's happening. You know, you remember Live Aid wasn't that long ago in our brains and Ethiopia no. and kids starving and, you know, railway disasters or fucking, you know, the Falklands and all this is still very real we didn't have much on the news and so it's do you know what i mean and also we're out playing the news wasn't there yeah all the time and everybody knew everybody knew the local nonce was so where we grew up certain parts of broxtow where i lived we knew which houses the nonces lived at yeah so we just nobody you know we knew the dodgy fucking men and nobody went near them yeah you, and that sounds a really weird thing to throw into the conversation, but it meant everybody was playing out on the scooters, playing Kirby, you know, playing with different groups. Because And also we had loads of youth clubs and green spaces. This was before property, before Phil and Kirsty, mm. before, you know, the greed of the the kind of the person, what those people called the, the property developer, buying mm. loads of houses and renting them back out to the council and all that. We didn't have that then. It just didn't exist, that level of greed. The greed was there, but not in a 
debate, you know, those kind of ways. You've got a big council estate, yeah. everyone lives in a council house, nobody owns the council house, really. Not in Broxtow, not back then. And, right. everyone, and everyone's playing out. And don't go near those two creepy bastards. And also, everyone looks out for everybody else. So, oh, where's well, exactly, yeah. Sally's kid? Oh, you know, and it was that sense of community. Mm. Um, the world has changed in ways that are so profoundly shocking that I think, I mean, I don't live on a council estate now. I don't know if kids are still allowed to play out in that way anymore because of, you know, communities not knowing each other in the same way. Or I don't know. I don't know. It has changed. I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago and and he was saying to me, you see this street here? It's the, one of the last sort of terrace streets in this area. But what it is, they've kept a community. Just these 20 houses, but they're a real community. Everybody talks to each other. Everybody yeah. looks out for each other. And I thought... Crikey, I mean, remember when I lived in London, when I was in Camden? It's like, I didn't know the upstairs neighbour. But people think you're weird, though, in London. When I was renting in London filming Harlots, I lived in a block of flats, and I was friendly with all my neighbours. What area were you? uh, Kentish Town. Right, okay. Yeah, Yeah, and... Just up the road. Yeah, and I'd lived there years ago anyway, but we were renting this flat, and... It took people a while to realise I wasn't... I mean, maybe I'm a bit mad, but, you know, that I'm just this friendly lass. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And then... Yeah. Because when we were little, it was go and knock on... Or go and borrow a cup of sugar and we'll give it back on payday or that. And I think that... And actually, I had a lot of that when I lived in East London. It was beautiful living there in Spitalfields for me then. You see... That seemed like a community. Oh, my gosh, everyone knew everyone. But it, it, yeah. it, it was like we'd gone back in time whenever I was in that part. Yeah. It was like it was, it was, it was really gone back yeah. to this is old school but community I think, stuff. But I think that is kind of whether we're working, you know, in the Spitalfields farm or, you know, like shopping at the same shop all the time, the local shop. When the big brand, when the big names are coming in and taking over the little local shops, it's hard then to build up you know, rapports with people. It's really hard. Um, and I think you have to get engaged in the community as well. You can't just live in your own little world, shut the door and draw the curtains. You have to actively say hello to people. And what happened yeah. to us when we were living there, we knew all the prostitutes that, that were on our doorstep because then it was pretty, you know, that's what it was. We, um, I was new, I was a newbie back then and there was people that had been lived on the street for years and years, but, you know, but still they were welcoming and, you get to know uh, the passes, the same passers by, and oh, that's it, you know. And then you know, as the years go by, and and Sandra Escalon, who obviously runs the Golden Heart, immediately, you know, I like a pint of Guinness. Immediately yeah. welcomed me, welcomed yeah. me and my family, and literally became like a mum. When I had my stroke, she came to visit me in hospital and bought me a pair of pajamas, checking yeah. I was okay. Yeah, you know, and and her children being so lovely to me, and and it's checking up, you know, and you know what I mean. It was it was amazing, and that. So I think it does still exist. People just have to invest in it. They have to put other people first, and maybe maybe this, this COVID situation has made people more loving towards their neighbours and more, you know. Well, that's what I was gonna. I was just going on to that because of the current state 
of the world and, and what we've all been thrust into. Do you think we are going to invest more in community or do you think it's going to push more people away? Um, because it could, it could go either way. Yeah. I th- because people are, te- people are terrified to, to be sort of... Ne- I, I, I was with Hardy in the corner shop um, four or five weeks ago, maybe, even before. We, we would always wear masks anyway. And I went to go and reach over, and he was, this other fellow in the shop was kind of near me, but not that much. And he turned around and went, back off! Back and got really quite aggressive with me. And poor little, my son's with me. Me and him are wearing masks, me and Hardy. Mm. He wasn't wearing a mask. And I went, I'm hardly near you. And plus, you're not even wearing a mask. Yeah. We're wearing masks for you. It's not for us, it's for you. Yeah. And you're, not, and you're being aggressive with me. But it really upset little Hardy. Not you know? surprised, I'm not surprised. Because it's like, oh, are we going to come together and look out for each other or are we is it gonna are we going to war are we gonna fight is it gonna turn very aggressive because people are scared and nervous mm. i just don't but know that's... i see i see good and bad things mm. all the time i don't really have an answer to that other than i tell you i tell you what it what it is for me is i have to believe that on a global level that we will connect, we will start to connect. The internet's done some pretty awful things, has opened up some pretty awful Pandora's boxes, but it's also enabled us to really connect with with communities, whether it's learning a little bit more about Black Lives Matter uh, yeah. protests and and also the injustice the social injustice in the united states or in turkey or you know it's, it's stuff that happens in the uk you know like it's hard to you have to be very careful though with social media what you believe and what you don't believe and all of that but at the same time i think that it will bring us together it cannot and look what happened in the 20s after you know, the Spanish flu, everyone loved everybody. It was like this, it was almost like a summer of love vibe. Yeah. And I have to have hope that that will happen. But I'm not blind to the fact that human instinct is often, I'm the king of the castle and you're the dirty rascal. And I'm all right, Jack. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes. Exactly. And I think it's who your leader is and what the message is about. And... It's like when we're on a job, if we, you know, you're on an unhappy job, you go, oh, it comes from the top. Let's just see what's going on you know, in the, in the, with the powers that be. And it filters down. Yeah. So I think that, you know, I think, I think there's hope, huge hope. But, uh, but I agree with you. I think we've got to have hope and we've got to feel some sort of positivity about it. Because if we go the other way, that's going to send us under. It'd send me under. Yeah, I just thought doom and gloom and full of negativity. But we've got an, an election coming up in America in November and we have a country that is so phenomenally powerful on the global stage that needs to sort its shit out. We need to sort our shit out. I think change is coming. I do. But sometimes things have to get really bad before they can get better. That's what I just tell myself. Yeah, well, you know, it's true. we have to have some metamorphosis. We have to have a real kind of realization. And you know, even just thinking back to Brexit, you know, and and I was devastated when Labour didn't get in, and I was absolutely yeah. shocked at the 
conservative landslide. Yeah. And I had to do some real kind of soul searching in regards to why didn't Labour get in? What have they done that's so bad that people don't understand that that they don't give a flying fuck about them, as in the, the Tories? Mm. Why don't they get that? Why don't these heartlands, you know, these Labour heartlands get that? And, you know, I'd... I'm, st- you know, obviously it was a Jer- it seemed to be a Jeremy Corbyn issue or anti-Semitic, you know, issue and all of that. Yeah, um, yeah. But people had had enough as well. At the end of the day, people just want jobs and they want good schools and they want nice roads and they want, you know, in mm. and they'd had enough. So, yeah, I've got a lot of kind of uh, thinking to be done in regards to. Because I was living in America, I love America. I spent I've spent most of my career living and working there, as you know. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, I mean, you know, you look at CNN or whatever. There's, you know, there's this. Gosh, there's messed up things all over. But you know, looking at sadly, an eight year old boy in Florida was arrested in school, and you know they're arresting children and putting them in handcuffs and how they, you know, this kind of school to prison thread and you know it's still legal in 27 states for a white christian 60 year old man to marry a 12 year old girl and you know we still have a a long long way to go if one of the most powerful you know countries on the planet is still so far behind well it's like as you said before it starts from the top and it trickles down yeah (laughs) It's just nuts, isn't it? Yeah. Sam, when did the raving kind of stop? And because we haven't even spoken about getting into acting yet. I mean, we've spoken a little bits of of influences of reading and poetry and all that. I'm just wondering when that kind of came into your life or if it was bubbling under there prior. I was at school, at junior school, and we did Joseph and his technical dream coat. Mm. And I auditioned for Joseph and didn't get it. This brilliant girl called Gemma Rollo got it, and she is brilliant, by the way. And I was like, okay, Gemma got it. But I knew that she had, like, proper dancing lessons and all that. And I was a bit bit jealous, really. Um, she was she was awesome. Uh, and um, I got the part of the pharaoh. And, I, and also, you've got to remember, I was the kid that would be, if someone was being bullied, I'd go up to that bully in the playground and headbutt them like a nutter, yeah. like an absolute <laughs> nutter. So I was always getting suspended. I went to so many junior schools, it was hilarious. And um, so I had this confidence about me that was like to do with when things were wrong, sticking up for people. Injustices. Totally. Yeah. And I l- could read aloud in class, looking back. Um, it wasn't so much I was like a, a Bonnie Langford type child, but I would I didn't give a fuck, if that makes sense. Like, I just yeah, wasn't shy. Yeah. Like, whatever, I'll do it, yeah, whatever. And I... Anyway, so there was this really, really lovely teacher at school called Mr Thompson, and he said to me, you seem to be really good at drama. I don't know what drama was, do you know what I mean? He said, I think you should yeah. do some drama. And uh, he put wrote down on a piece of paper for me, uh, Central Junior TV Workshop. And anyway, I can't remember what happened to that piece of paper, but I moved, of course. And then eventually I found myself in a, in a children's home a few years later. And uh, I... Oh, and Mr Thompson had also been at my other school. 
because that's what Nottingham's like. So he'd known me with my another set of foster fam, foster parents where I used to put plays on. I used to make right plays, put them on in the school hall, on the stage with all my mates. Right. Um, you know, if I could get a chance of playing chopsticks, I would. Do you know what I mean? On the piano. Like, <laughs> I just loved a stage. Um, and just, yeah, it was just, anyway, I loved it. And um, so anyway, there we go. I'm there now in this children's home. And I had been doing gymnastics, weirdly. This is another one for years. And I was in a proper, like, I was doing proper gymnastics, not like just a bit of roly-poly, getting your bagger awards. Like, I was proper mm. in a gymnastics club, Rushcliffe Gym Club. And... Um, and I was in a car accident and I broke my knee and my shoulder and my tongue are really messed. I was in a bad way anyway. Got hit on a zebra crossing, would you believe it? And really? Oh, mega horrible accident, yeah. Fuck. And so I couldn't do gymnastics anymore. And I was like there with, you know, my plaster cast had come off and I was back in, you know, I was in this children's home. And they knew I was a bright kid, you know. I wasn't there sniffing glue or taking gas or... You know, they could sense, you know, they could have a conversation with me. I was, I was you know, I was a bright kid. Mm. There were other bright kids there, but that just been not has been as fortunate to have the foster parents I'd had or whatever. Do you know what I mean? And my dad's, my yeah. dad was bright as well. So, you know. Um, you foster, you're, you're, real real, dad, your dad. Sorry, my real, real dad. dad. And yeah. my stepdad, phenomenally intelligent man. Um, and, um, yeah, I said, oh, I remembered you know, really wanting to do this drama thing anyway. And I'd been watching television programmes, as you do as a kid, and I just thought the acting was really rubbish and I thought the writing was really rubbish for children. You know, when grown-ups write for children, they're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. oh go on then, or whatever. And I was yeah. like, oh, we don't it's even speak like that. not how children speak. Yeah, and yeah. I think I, I wrote some kind of letter along with the the my key worker, who had a lovely key worker in that home called Kathleen Lindsay. She was amazing so kind to me um she I think she wrote off or something anyway I got an application form and I wrote a letter stuck my picture on it and and then I moved again to another foster family and I went for an audition but I got a recall but I didn't know and so I missed the recall and then right back in the home why again. didn't why didn't you why didn't you know because the foster you, parents the didn't not... tell me that I'd got oh, a recall right. They didn't give me my post or whatever. And as a child, right. I would have only had... That would have been what it was, do you know what I mean? That yeah. lovely envelope with the central TV logo on it, that the world with the colours. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, So exciting when you got one of those letters. Um, anyway, so eventually the, the, the children's home sorted it out that I could get to one of these auditions to see if I could get in the group. And I got in the group, so I was very young when I started workshop. And I How got... Old? 11 or 12, it was 11 or 12 or something. It was wow, like, it was wow, young. Wow, right, yeah. Yeah. My, my dates were all over the place. You have to bear with me. And, yeah, um, yeah. and basically there was, um, there was this thing, Ian Smith, who I love and still a very, very dear friend to me, um, was doing this, what's called improvisation. And we were in a circle. I don't know what that was. And, um, so at the audition, <laughs> he has to whisper in everyone's ear, like, you know, like, um, so, uh, Vanula's stolen your hamster, you know, off you go. Like, you know, a bit, not quite legs akimbo from League of Gentlemen, <laughs> but do you know what I mean? It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't far off that. Not you know? a world away. Yeah, yeah. And um, I remember this girl, I, I, I just, I think I beat her up. I attacked her and Ian was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And I was, I was like, you told me she fucking nicked my hamster. Do you know what I mean? And that's what I do if like someone nicked my hamster. Anyway, so I got in the group through being an absolute nutter and that changed my life. So wherever I was, whether I was 
sleeping on the streets or with different foster parents, I still tried to get to workshop. You know, because people always want to help somebody like me when I was a kid. There's always kind people going, right, we're going to sort you out. Come on, pull your socks up. You can do this. Because I had potential, I suppose. So when did it all stop? It stopped at around the age of, I'd say, 14 and a half, 15. Right. I had the, I just suddenly, I got into a lot of serious trouble with the police. And that changed my life, being in uh, an adult cell for three days, solitary confinement for three days, um, because that's what they did with kids back then. They still do. But, and that was a turning point to go, it was a big wake-up call, like, you just, you can't do this anymore. And I had a dream, actually. I had this really weird dream that I was on this roller coaster and I was, I fell out off the roller coaster and... Sam in the dream went listen to your American accent Sam and I was talking American I was speaking an American accent and then I floated down through all these stars in the sky and I could hold them and I could touch them and then I landed on a street like in Mapley Park like Nottingham Street with all these huge old trees and beautiful big Victorian houses and it was all the, the mist was kind of halfway up and I saw a TV and a remote control on the floor and I walked up and I picked this remote control up and I couldn't quite work the channels out but I was trying to change the channels on the telly and then I turned and then I walked into this huge kind of Victorian gothic Nottingham kind of house and it was really um kind of uh, tired and old with broken windows and badly painted and then I was walking up the stairs and then I went into this bathroom again that was really badly painted and I looked in the mirror there was me and then there was another me and the other me uh, I didn't quite quite recognise. Um, and then I woke up. Anyway, I had this dream a few times. Reoccurring dream. Uh, really? Oh, yeah, and I wrote Such it down. Because I've always kept diaries. Dream. Yeah, and I've wrote it yeah. all down, you know, wrote it down yeah. years ago and I've had it a few times. And I started looking into, like, dream analysis books and things like that. And I was all yeah. into, like, Linda Goodman's, you know, sun signs and love signs and things that, you know, under, you know, I liked a bit of aromatherapy as well, you know, all of that. And um, I... I felt that I'd had a, a significant dream and it was a, a, what's called, you know, like a main dream in your life that is a teaching yeah. dream. And I thought, if I carry on the roller coaster where I am, I'm going to be fucked. I need to claim, reclaim my life and the idea of the television being able to change the channels. I can do that. And in dreams, houses are meant to represent yourself. So they might have all been broken, but there was a, like... I can get inside myself and I can fix this. I can change everything. I can fix this house up. I can make it better. I can get to the heart of myself. Um, yeah. And it took a huge amount of courage to stop hanging out with the mates I was hanging out with and uh, just not see all those people anymore. And these are back in the day when you don't got computers or phones or... No. You know, and... But especially at such a young age... Well, you've, you're going, right, I'm going to take control. Mm. I'm going to, cha- well, I think, I'm going to change something. I think something. I, I got sent to what's called a, a like a, a, a children's home that was like a secure unit, the bars and things like that. And it was, it was hot and it was a really horrible time because I was always moving to different children's homes anyway, where there was horrible abuse happening. And, and I was running away and staying in these kind of, weird squats and things like that and and I just didn't I just knew that I had to 
that I couldn't celebrate it anymore. I couldn't go out and celebrate in the same way anymore because I, it was, you know, when you're going back to what I was going back to, that wasn't good. And I knew that I, in order to change the system, I had to work with the system. So I had to toe the line. I had to do whatever they fucking told me to do. Keep smiling, gritted teeth in order to get out. And I got eventually got this place, they call it an independence unit, but it's basically a homeless hostel for young people who have got nowhere else to go. And that is meant to be a stepping stone before you get your first flat. And so, yeah, and also Ian Smith stayed in my life. So even though I was kicked out of workshop for being, you know, unreliable, late, you know, letting people down, because that's what happens when you're inconsistent with all of that. Obviously, he wasn't at school. Um, I wasn't, you know, I was not a good member of the community at the workshop at that time. So I was not there. I was, you know, kicked out. And then Ian let me yeah. back in. Right. I got in touch with him. I'd been writing a lot of poetry and he, he used to be an English teacher. So I'd asked him to read all my poetry and I'd written, tried to write a play. And then he brought me back to the workshop and then we collectively devised the play that I'd been trying to write, uh, called twock which was taken without owner's consent yeah um and so that was the first kind of attempt at any kind of a bit like with the unloved like getting behind the scenes a bit and i played a couple of parts in it but it was it was life-changing it's funny because we were talking about roots before and it sounds like finally with the workshop they were kind of like the roots that you were needing for all this time well I think Ian believed in me but I mean I remember telling social workers because you have so many at different times like um oh I'm gonna I want to go to London I want to become an actor and go to London I want to go to drama school and they were like well you know they only give out a few uh performing arts grants in Nottingham a year at that time and you're competing with dancers musicians you think you're going to get a grant to go to drama school in London? And by the way, Sam, you need GCSEs. So I went back to college to do try and get some GCSEs. And they let me in college early because I wasn't allowed at any comprehensive school. I was barred from all the schools. No schools would let me in. Because so, of your behaviour in the past? Yeah, because of my criminal yeah. record and things like that. Right. And so I, they really kindly let me into Clarendon College to, to try and do... They let me do a BTEC in drama... And I had a great education welfare officer who was trying to just do something with me because she could see I'd got potential. So from 14, I started going to college. Um, and what, and I d- what happened at the end of college? Um, I wasn't consistent with it because I couldn't afford stuff at college. Uh, I couldn't get bus fare sometimes or I didn't get sleep because of the where I was living. And, you know, if there was a riot in the home, you're not going to be able to get up in the morning and get two buses to college or so I didn't stay at college (laughs) but then again Ian believed in me and when I was allowed back into the workshop he started giving me train fare to go to London for auditions and and that's when I got peak practice and that's when I got cracker you just started just started turning up at these these auditions but oh no because he was probably connected with the workshop yeah it was Ian yeah yeah because I'd done a bit you know, it, he did this thing where he'd taken us all on a minibus to London and he'd hired a room at the Groucho Club. And it was a showcase for Nottingham Talent to see if we could get agents. And right. um, I got an agent as well, but I was 16 at that point for that. And right. living in the homeless hostel. And 
so yeah, through Ian and uh, a really, really amazing agent called Michael Emptage, um, who worked at a company with Sharon Hamper. Um, yeah, they, they, they believed in me and, and started sending me off to these auditions. And it sounds really like, I don't know, like I'm full of myself, but I literally got every part I went up for, for the, for, for like, I don't know, a couple of weeks. It was all a bit weird. And then I suddenly went back to my little homeless hostel room and was with my best friends and went, I think I'm going to move to London. And turned up in London because I got a play at the Royal Court and I had nowhere to live. I'd got a name of someone on a piece of paper that a really dear friend of mine knew someone in London and said, Mm. this is when you go, this is just phone this person. She might have a room. And looking back, the social services knew that I wanted to go to London. They could have got me a flat, a council flat or something, you know, but they didn't. So again, I get to London. I'm just, do you know what I mean? A bit sleep, yeah. sleeping at St Pancras uh, Station wasn't a good idea. God, no. Because if I didn't have, if I missed the last train or if I, you know, wandering around or whatever, I don't, before I knew anyone in London and you're going off to auditions, I'm, do you get what I mean? You're not, Yeah. you know, it was, it was a funny old time. Did you start to settle, though? Did you feel that London was a place... Because it's I, so funny at the start, you know, we were talking yeah. about Nottingham and the sense of roots and how proud people there are from and you, you are, but you love London. Did you fall I in fell love in with love it? with London immediately. I thought it was amazing because I'd watched a night, you know, an, uh, an American Wealth in London and this is my first time in London. <laughs> I thought... <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, it's like the movies. I... Oh my gosh, my agent was in, it was on Great Queen Street, which is, you know, Covent Garden. And it it literally was like Dick Whittington. I just, the streets were paved with gold, but happiness, like the smell of Soho, the people, the, oh my, I thought it was, I was like, oh, I might be able to get to the fridge in Brixton. Because when I used to listen to Rave FM, they always used to talk about the fridge in Brixton. And I was like, oh, and all these things I can do. And I'll go to the, the Roxy or, you know, or, oh, you know, there was, I don't know, like, you know, things travel. Like, even like, like when friends of mine from the workshop would go to London for the day, they'd come back with the best shoes from Shelley's. Because we only, yeah. we had a Specto in Nottingham that's still there, by the way, an amazing shoe shop. And we got Paul Smith, remember, he's from Nottingham in the Paul Smith shop. Yeah. And we had really, you know, and everyone, we liked our, you know, our Ralph Lauren and we liked our Stone Island. You know, we we got our thing. And I think Not- Nottingham people really know how to dress, I have to say that. Yeah. But here you are in London again. Oh, there's the London shops. Do you know what I mean? And, um, yeah. and I'd stopped shoplifting at that point. So I wasn't going <laughs> to steal anything. <laughs> it's a good job, really. Um, but did I, I did fall in love with London, but London gave me the theatre, actually. Like, I'd never done a proper play. I'd done plays down at workshop, but 16, getting a play at the Royal Court was just amazing. Um, yeah. And Ian Rickson, again, took a chance on me, and, and I'm grateful, you know, to him for that. And it's where I first met Jonathan Harvey, who's a really good friend of mine, and, you know... I was able to see, you know, and I, I, you know, James Hooten, a friend of mine, had done a play at the Bush, and I'd gone to see that as well. And I, I just felt like there was this magic in the air, and I felt part of that magic. I'm forever grateful, you know, forever grateful, and forever grateful to a woman called Dee, who's sadly not here anymore. But she, again, I imagine this kid. Imagine today, like your doorbell rings, 
And there's someone going, you're all right. <laughs> Hello. Hello. And you're like, yeah, my name's Sam and Caroline. Um, has Caroline been in touch? She said I was to say, come by. And she's like, no, but you all right. You know, she let me up these, I remember, Peabody buildings in Covent Garden, you know, so up I go up all yeah. the stairs and I get to the top and this this amazing woman with this long black hair and tattoos everywhere. She worked at Abbey Road. She was a sound engineer at Abbey Road. She was like, come in. And we just sat talking till like three, four in the morning. Just, she was, I was just fortunate to meet the best people at the right time. She was like, yeah. she's like, you can stay. Yeah, you can stay. And I was like, oh my God. So I was in her spare room and, and then I went off, you know what I mean? So I did my, when I was doing my play at the Royal Court, I stayed at Dee's, Dee and Wattie's who became my friends. And, and, I was just so fucking lucky, you know, even like meeting Kathy Burke on one of my first jobs, big jobs. And, you know, having those strong, intelligent, opinionated, you know, forward thinking, kind um, women in my life at yeah. such a young age. And, and I have to say the same happened to me. I moved to New York when I was 19. And that happened to me there. I just seemed to meet the certain people at the right time that opened up doors to me and opportunities to me so do you, do you think it is still all about timing and luck yes you've got it's got to be a bit of that going on in the world all the time like if I didn't cross the street at that time would I have been hit by that car or this or that yeah because yeah. we're all living our lives and mm. we have it the amount of times you must have been into town and you go you bump into somebody, you go, oh my God. And you know yourself that you're running late or you shouldn't have been there at that time. But if you hadn't mm -hmm. and you see that person and it's made your day or it's made you think about something differently or you're like, oh my, or you, we all get it when we're thinking about someone, they're bloody ringers or yeah. I do believe in things like that. And, but I do believe we have, we have the power deep, deep down to affect and manifest positive changes in our life. Because it is depression is a real thing, oppression is a real thing, societal fuckery is a real thing. But if you genuinely inside wake up in the morning, and I'm I'm not trying to preach about God here, but I do believe in God. I believe in a higher power. I thank the Lord for every day I'm alive and my children are safe and well. And that might not always be the case. You know, it, it's a life is a fucking tough tough one. You know. And, but I think that attitude and that kind of, you know, case sirrah, sirrah. And I think when you've been so low and everything's been so fucking shit as a kid, what the fuck can I, what, what can happen? Sorry about my language today, but what no. can happen? What, no, nothing can touch you. And it's Psalms, I don't know, is it Psalms, something, it's like, uh, Psalms 27, I think, or 26. And the Lord is my light. For whom shall I fear? You know, and then they talk about, you know, mine enemies came and tried to get my flesh, but the Lord was, you know, like, you, you and, and as a kid, I'd be like, all these people that harmed me, you can do what the fuck you like to me, but you're not going to get to my brain. You cannot get my soul. So all, everything else from that point, if I didn't get a part, I didn't get it. And I think for a lot of actors, that's a real, real struggle. Rejection. Yeah. And ego and all of that. And I was like, fuck it. I'm just happy to play Mandy the car thief with two lines because I'm earning more. My 50 quid is more than I was getting, you know, living where I was before. And that has never, ever left me. And in, You still feel that now? Yes. 
Absolutely. I'll be doing a scene at work and it's not pleasant. I might have issues with it and, and I'll be like, hold on a minute, this is... Right, that's pain for the shower. This is pain for the shower. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. It sounds really shallow, but I'm like, no, we need a new shower. It's pain for the shower. Craig, I'm going to shut my windows because it's getting dark and I was eaten alive last night by a mosquito. So I'm going to shut my Get windows. Shut. One <laughs> Samantha Morton is going to the lace curtains and she's shutting the door. No. She's shutting the window. Hello. I've got nets. That, I've got proper nets on that one, so that one's all right. Um, and it's so hot that I would like the windows open, actually, but, you know. One word. Citronella. I know. Citri- I need a citronella candle. I do. Harry hates the smell. I don't mind the smell. He hates the smell. I can hardly have lavender oil in the car. I put lavender oil on um, pine cones because we've got dogs, yeah. and I hate this. You know, dogs can get quite smelly and horrible. Mm. So if I wet d- dog, oh my god! So put in a bit of lavender oil or you know sandalwood oil on a pine cone or, or a bunch of acorns and just dropping them in the bottom of the footwell. And Harry, when he had his when when I first met him, he had a really nice car, and he'd be like, he, he didn't know I'd hidden all these pine cones and acorns in his car. He's <laughs> <was> like, <laughs> was like, why does my car stink like old ladies? It's fucking horrible. And I'd be like. I didn't say anything for ages, and then I was like, no, it's me, sorry. Sam, we were talking before about, you know, moving around from school to school and uh, different children's homes. There was constant sort of that that kind of life. And even now, you still do that with job to job when you go around the world, but you pick up the family, and they're never not with you, are they? Yes, it, pretty, um, mu- pretty much. I think, but if you're go- if you're going to America, America, for a long we go together. Time, like, yeah. yeah, I did one job in America by myself, and it was awful because we tr- we just thought, oh, we'll give it a go, uh, and it didn't work uh, at all. We've, we can't. We 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 tried, and it didn't work for not only for me, for them, it was horrible. So yeah. um, we're very close family, um, but I think that. The jobs changed, you know, like it used to be that you'd do movies and the movies didn't take that long. And my part wasn't always like the biggest part. So your your, your, your days are like, OK, so it's a th- they're shooting for 12 weeks, but you're filming from, you know, the I don't know the 8th to the 21st. And then you've got a week off and then you've got two days here or whatever. And so you, yeah. you, you, your family doesn't always travel with you, but you I made all those things work. And then the then films are kind of drying up because they're just not being made anymore in the way that they used to be made. And television yeah. kicks in. So the first telly thing like that was the, the the Last Panthers, where as a family we went to Montenegro and Serbia and Marseille and London, and that was that was the first time we ever really kind of went, "Come on, off we all go," mm. and that was really fun and interesting and. Uh, Edie must have only been about, well, Teddy was a baby. Teddy must have been about a year and Edie was six or something. So, you know, like, oh, God. It, and it was, a, it's an adventure. Edie learned Serbian and she could, she had, she knew the, you know, Cyrillic alphabet because we had a, you know, we, we needed to get some help. So we had this amazing nanny, a Serbian nanny 
who spoke fluent English because he worked in England for years, but was taught the you know taught Edie Serbian, and that's an, and she remembers so much about that time, and you know, and I learned a huge amount on that job, so it, it is amazing. But I think now certain- Edie's at, Edie's going to start her. She's twelve now, yeah, and that can't happen anymore. And I don't think that's right and fair to do that to a child at that age when they need their friends and their consistency. So I don't know. I mean, that's why The Walking Dead was a bit of a, like, okay, do we do this as a family? Do we move to the States? Like, properly? And we sat and we talked about it, and Edie was young enough whereby she could she could still do that. And so we did it. And it was... And it worked. It was. It wasn't easy because of the you know being in Georgia and uh, I think had we been filming in LA or New York it might have been a lot easier. Um, yeah. But we I don't drive so we were living quite you know not rurally but in a beautiful beautiful small small town. Um, but the school system there is quite complex because in Georgia it's still legal to paddle a child so corporal punishment still happens to children as young as four. Really? Yeah. Oh my god, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I I didn't want to stay in Atlanta. I love Atlanta, but I couldn't film in uh, stay live in Atlanta because of again I didn't drive. And when you're doing television in America, you have to drive yourself to work. There's no such thing as unit drivers. Mm. Uh, you probably knew that. I didn't know that. And so, I know, but this is for the this is for the other people listening okay, to the podcast. In England, <laughs> you are treated like. An idiot, a baby on film sets. Yeah. You literally, they yep. drive you in. And it's because they work you really long hours, to be fair, as well. They drive you in and they drive you home. Or you share a car with a group of other people. Um, Woody Allen gave us a minibus. Everyone's on a minibus. Um, but in television in America, you have to drive yourself. And because I don't drive, I was like, well, I can't be in Atlanta because I'm not going to have to get an Uber to work every day. It's gonna, That's half my wages on just getting to yeah. work. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you think about it for all that time, for the yeah. seven or eight months we're filming. Um, so we we stayed near to where I was filming, which was great, but it meant that the school choices were pretty pretty crazy in regards to this corporal punishment thing. Yeah. So we decided to homeschool. And there's a huge homeschooling community, you know, out there in America. It's very, very common because people have all sorts of issues with the education system out there. So, Yeah. But I know a few friends of mine that homeschool in the northwest, and there is a huge community. Once you sort of cast the net out, yeah. it's all it's all there, and they all know each other, yeah. and they all get together. Yeah, exactly, and, you meet up at you know yeah. recreation grounds and do stuff together, and yeah, and sometimes you even go and see the same teacher together. So, like in Georgia, there was a few kids that went to this certain science teacher, and you know, so you have someone facilitate all the different lessons. You're not just you know, as a parent, you're not just struggling with that alone. It's like we were talking about before about um, you know a sense of community that uh, that in itself is is another community, the yeah. homeschooling community, yeah. and they all sort of get together. Yeah. Sam, have you ever thought about n- not acting? Yes. And knocking it all on the head in 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 a and not in a, a slightly sort of whimsical way, in, in a deadly serious way. Yeah. If that's possible. Yeah, I had I've had a couple of. Three times. So the first time was after my stroke. And I was... Can we just let the listeners know? Because obviously I, <laughs> I, I know what happened. Yeah. <laughs> but um, just if you just sort of let, let us in uh, the, the 
prior oh, to, yeah, to I, the stroke. Oh, yeah, a ceiling fell on my head. And Don't laugh. I'm not laughing. No, I'm, it is. I'm it's fine to laugh. I, I, Only I, me. I'm not laughing. I've never I was laughed. born on Friday the 13th. I get hit by a car on a zebra crossing. Do you know what I mean? It's like, fucking, if a bird's going to shit, it's going to shit on my head kind of thing. Um, I, uh, yeah, a ceiling fell on my head. And it was a new ceiling, but it would have been made with not enough horse hair. You know, it was a yeah. lime plaster vibe and all that. Um, and it cut my vertebral artery uh, and I was very lucky because I was able to be diagnosed very quickly. So I made a full recovery from my stroke. But I, you know, I was just petrified. I think the first job I did going after the stroke was synecdoche. Uh, and I got pregnant as well. So, so I just recovered from the stroke, came out of hospital, went to New York, got pregnant was filming with, you know, Phil Seymour Hoffman, you know, the Charlie Kaufman film. Yeah. And I found it all kind of overwhelming, I think. I think it's been pregnant as well. And I, I remember then thinking, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And then recently I've been thinking, I mean, I love directing, you see, as, you know, we worked together on, on my first yeah. film and that yeah. is something that I'm really hungry to get back behind the camera again. Um, I've done a you know, a few music videos and art and arty film and things like that. But I think that that's something that I really want to explore. But um, it seems, it's, and I can say this because you're my friend, it seems as natural a place for you behind the camera as it does in front, fr- from, from, from looking at it from the outside oh, with you, you on the floor. Do you thank know what I mean? You. No, I, do, I think, yeah. that, do you know what I mean? It was very... I felt very comfortable. I felt like I'd been no. there all my life. I did. And I yeah, think, and that's exactly that what it's like. And I think no, exactly. So yeah, um, so yeah, I have, I have gone. Oh, and and it is mainly to do with work life balance and health, as opposed to hating acting or hating the industry. Mm. Because I'm, mm. I now more than ever love it more than ever. You know, with what's happened with the theatre and COVID and and our industry and COVID. So yeah, can you see recovery? In the in the near future, do you think it's going to take a long time for our industry to get back on its from its knees? Because it is. I feel it's on its knees at the moment, and I know there's a lot of people that are very very worried. I don't see how regional theatres that were already struggling with council cutbacks. Um, I don't see at the moment how, unless local government deems it an essential thing, like your GP or your dentist, how those places will survive at the moment because at the end of the day people have to at least you know cover their costs <laughs> and at yeah. the moment that isn't a possibility um who knows what the future holds but i think at the moment it seems pretty grim and i think that the bigger productions at the moment they're getting back to work they're testing everybody a lot mm. um but those tests are very expensive. So if you want to make a low-budget film right now and you're testing the whole crew, I mean, SAG have really strict rules about it, which is brilliant in, in America, the SAG Afro Union. And I love yeah. what they're doing and they're really looking after their members. And But at the same time here, I haven't had an email from Equity. I don't know if you have about what our rights are on set and yep. things like that. Um, so... I think it's it's a bit flaky, no? It's I think people it's a bit like the Wild West. People are obviously the insurance companies are gonna to have to be involved, but it's I don't think it's just a case of mass testing. I think it's a case of I mean, where are you gonna go? If somebody gets coronavirus on a film set, 
because of someone else's negligence and dies, are their family going to sue? I mean, it's yeah. it's a really serious thing. So, and we all we all know what a, a, a tight ship it is on a set, and everybody's together. And look at the crew. Yeah, but I if mean, you get tired, how... you can make might make a little miss, you know, mishap and touch something you shouldn't have touched and scratch yeah. your face, or yeah, you know, it's it's um, it's not like we can wear full PPE and have a chat. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is why I've got to keep carrying on these conversations because I don't know when I'm going to get back in front of a camera. But, but it's, it's great so that funny. you've got this. And I, what I think is really brilliant is that you do this anyway, but that to have a purpose, to have something, and you're, you're amazing at this and talking to people and, and being interested and asking questions. And, and it's hard for me not to bat it back at you and go, what do you think? And like, we're in a prop, like we're in the pub having a chat. No, but you, you, you know, you can do that, but that's why I would, that's why I started this because I want to turn the spotlight on somebody else and have the focus purely on them. Because as I was, I was oh God, I feel like I'm always repeating this, but I was saying this last night to someone, it's very rare that you sit down with either a friend or someone that you don't know and it's make it all about them. And that's Unless all, it's therapy. All it is. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it's <laughs> which, which, which this kind of is. A or you go into a fortune teller. Yes, if you pop into Blackpool, yeah. go and see Gypsy Rosalie. Yeah. She'll, she'll be there for you. Yeah. Although not anymore, they're all closed down at the oh, moment. Oh, that's too upsetting. Well, social distancing. What we need is a social distancing fortune teller, Sam. That's what we need. <laughs> that's my next. That's my next job. I'll get me candles out and stop that. I think it's perfect, Samantha Morton. I am so pleased that we've finally been able to sit down and do this because I know we've been nattering and talking about yeah. you coming on this for fucking three years. <laughs> it's true. But I'm really, I'm really thrilled. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, was that it? Yeah. That was a long time. <laughs> yeah, no. But it went really quickly and we didn't really talk about acting, which was great. No, I know, because with, fine. When, I, when I have actors on, I've always, it's not a rule, but I never like to steer the conversation into what was such and such like. Because, yeah, yeah. because, because part of our job at the end is all the press. And it's like, yeah, oh, yeah. gosh, those questions about that film or that actor or this yeah, director. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I want it to be a much more human aspect. I want it to be about the person. Well, thank you. It was great. And another episode is done. What an absolute belter of an episode. I love chatting with Sam. So great. Um, I really hope you enjoyed it. So thank you so much for downloading and subscribing. You know where we are. We're on all the social medias at Two Shot Pod. Send us a message. You can send us an email if you like. It's twoshotpod at gmail.com. And yeah, you take care. And we'll definitely see you next week for episode 130. I am just setting up to record with somebody who is currently residing in Los Angeles. Hmm. I'll leave that one with you. As if you're going to work it out from that. (laughs) Such a crap clue. Anyway, you take care of yourself until next week, okay? And uh, we'll see you bright and early next Thursday. Until then, 
I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff. And this has been the Two Shot Podcast. Take it easy. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>